You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the programme tonight, our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants will be joining me in the studio shortly and we'll be heading to the Antipodean region to talk about wines from New Zealand. Public health and clinical nutritionist Neve Arthurs has details about what her role involves and what we can do to improve our eating habits. And then finally, at the end of the show, blogger Rory Carrick recently attended a foraging retreat on the beautiful Lambay Island and Rory will be giving us an insight into what the three-day retreat involved. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with me here on the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. And I'm always interested in hearing your food story, family recipes and festival details. So please don't hesitate to send me all the information. So last month, our resident wine expert, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, he deviated from his usual topic and we were discussing the gin explosion in Ireland. Well, tonight Ron is back and wine returns to the menu and we're going to the Antipodean region to talk about wines from New Zealand. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. And tonight we're going to the Antipodean region, to New Zealand. Yes. Uh, a very well-known part of the world for wine in particular. The Cloudy Bay is the one that comes to mind with me that years yes, ago. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It would have been very rare to see Cloudy Bay on a menu. And if you did, it, it probably wasn't cheap, but mm. it was a very sought-after wine. Is it still as exclusive or is it easier it, to get it now? That's exactly it. It's not as exclusive as it used to be. Uh, it's easier to get. Um I suppose the reason Cloudy Bay worked particularly well is because an Irish company um, called Finlitter is a wine company, a very old wine company based in Dublin, uh, controlled uh, the Cloudy Bay allocation for Ireland, which was literally about 400 cases or 500 cases. I'm talking back in the early 2000s, that kind of time. And uh, people really wanted it. So they spread it out. They sold nobody a case or two cases. They spread out like three bottles, six bottles, a case maybe to really big customers and then it became um, sought after and people liked it and and, uh, it wasn't cheap it wasn't that expensive either and uh, it really worked and then a new agent took it over about seven or eight years ago and there was always much more of it available than that just that Finner's view on it was that let's not flood the market with stuff now let's make it a bit more uh, a bit rarer and uh, then it has an added value and the other company took it over, then a company called Edward Diddlands, and they imported about 1,000 or 1,200 cases straight away because they thought this stuff sells. And it just collapsed the market for it. It just took away the the mystery, took away the uh, you know the people saying, that, God, I managed to get my hands on two bottles of Cloudy Bay, whereas now you could go into a shop and they'd say, listen, I'll drop a case to you, no problem at all if you want it. And how did the consumer hear about it initially? Because it's not like there was a huge advertising campaign behind it that made the, you know, the, the pull effect in the market where the consumer were asking for it. Was it was it just kind of like a word of mouth amongst it, a certain set? Yeah, it was better restaurants that did it. Um, it was the top, very top-end restaurants uh, had wanted it for their wine list. It was the first Sauvignon Blanc um, you know, outside France that really got uh, the attention that the French products had always got before. 
Um, it was really premium, yet the price wasn't that premium. You know, it was the same price as a very good Chablis would be or a very good Sancerre would be. It was the same price. Yet it had this real, real uh, rarity aspect to it, which really worked. It was New Zealand. The product is exceptionally good now. Really, really nice Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and had a Chardonnay as well, and a Pinot Noir, which were less in demand. Um, and the, the whole package behind it, um, the winemakers, everything was all very guarded. They were the flagship for New Zealand. Um, New Zealand wine, wine of New Zealand, that that brand if you like pushed Cloudy Bay all the time as being the one now that stopped as well because obviously other other wines came up that in blind tastings and in competitions did just as well so obviously they wanted a piece of the action as well so it spread out much more and I thought was one of the most interesting things that happened with um, with Cloudy Bay and and Wither Hills and uh, a lot of product New Zealand products is that they were the very first to move into school caps um, you know 15 years ago when when we had a real issue with things showing up in school caps, they were the first to produce it and gave no choice. You either take it or you don't. That's what they were coming in. And the whole New Zealand brand took it as, uh, the whole New Zealand wineries took it and said, we're going to run with this, we're going to put our best products into it. And that meant that either you bought them or you didn't. Um, whereas if another country had started doing it and put their cheaper products into it and tried to launch it that way, people may have never accepted it. But the way it worked, it worked really well. And of course, the screw caps versus the cork is something that we've talked about a few times here, Mm. that there's a number of reasons why it is actually better to go for the screw cap. You never need a cork screw to hand for a start. Never need a cork screw. Funny thing, I talked about this with a customer earlier on, and um, the the customer an outdoor catering company that did a lot of weddings, and uh, we were talking about wine first, and uh, the lady said it has to be screw cap, because they had wine at a wedding a couple of weeks ago where it was cork. And none of the staff she said, could open them. Like, they have gone so far away from it that they just should have had to put some guy down the corner opening bottles of wine for an hour or two uh, because he was the best one at it, you know, which is a terrible waste of a day. Um, whereas the screw caps are so easy, you open what you need. Even that day, she said, with the corks, we ended up with 18 or 20 bottles unused because they had to be opened beforehand. You couldn't be waiting to do it at the time. So they're much more efficient. Um, they work perfectly well. The only products that are not going into them are the better red products, really, and the really good white products from France, Spain, uh, Italy are not going into screw caps. They're going to stay in cork. Because it doesn't affect the quality of the product. In fact, it probably enhances it because there's no risk of a bottle being corked it's if there is no, no cork in it. There's no risk at all. It's a, like it moves down to an absolute uh, decibel of a percent. Um, in opposed to a fairly strong percentage of the corks, which are which are proven to be very difficult. Now there is other methods as well. There's synthetic corks and, and there's compound corks. You know, which are the ones that are not don't really look like an original cork. They're compounded together like chipboard would be to make a cork, and they're hard to open because they're not as flexible as the old corks were, and they don't breathe as well. And uh, whereas the screw caps are just so much so much easier. And people look look at home. Look go down to a shop now. And look at the shelf in, in, a, in a supermarket that has a range of wine and you can count on one hand how many of them are going to have a cork. Now you mentioned Findladders there, which is still going strong, but did it have a collaboration with Nash Wine at a time? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I worked for Nash's at the, for, for years. And our, when I started with Nash's in 1999, the uh, original name of that company was Finlander Nash. 
and Nash would be best known for its minerals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, best known as Richard Nash, um, who's still in town here, um, has um, had a, a, a number of companies, but one of them was uh, uh, the Mineral Water Company, uh, Nash Mineral Waters, uh, also involved in Nash Beverages, which was the collaboration with Heineken. Uh, and then there was a division called, it ended up in Nash Wines, which was a... Um, a division dedicated to on-trade wines. Very successful, actually. Because I believe Nash Wines did start to import and bottle wine in the late 19, or yeah. 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. It was as, as early as that. It was, But that was very common now. You know, that was very common. That was an unusual thing to happen. If you had wholesalers like Nash's, you know, you'd have Donahue's and Wexford, uh, Letts as well down in the southeast, that would have been, they'd have bought in barrels of, um, you know, casks of port and uh, even whiskey casks and bottled on site. That would have been a fairly uh, a normal thing to have done because you wouldn't have had the flexibility from the producers to do it for you. You know, they were happy to sell you a cask or something and do whatever you want to, whereas now a producer wouldn't let you do that. They want to know exactly what's happening to it, as in what bottle is going into, you know, that they're getting the recognition for what's in it, whereas there wasn't as much at that that time. And uh, Nash's originally was just a fascinating story. Um, Richard Nash's father, that company was just hugely successful, like hugely, uh, and a real trailblazer. Uh, I remember being at a, at a dinner once with Richard Nash talking about um, um, water, you know, sparkling water, which is Ballygown, obviously, you know, and, and the connection there. But Richard said they were producing siphon water, carbonated uh, water, 120, 130 years ago. Yeah, I, th- I read in 1873, Joanna Nash, who mm. I'd say would be Richard Nash's grandmother or great-grandmother, learned to carbonate water and carbonate drinks, and that's how the whole fizzy side of the business mm. started. But also you're saying about Ballygowan Water there, that the guy, Jeff Reed, that started Ballygowan Water with Richard Nash, mm. he was the man that introduced the small bottles of wine to Ireland under a company called Grape Expectations. Mm, that's right, yeah, yeah. I just read that recently and thought that was quite interesting because, again, that's something we've talked about here on the show, mm. about the small bottles of wine. Like Ireland is one of the largest consumers yeah, yeah, of that it's one after of the, the only, airlines. Uh, yeah, after the airlines, absolutely, because the airline business has always been there for it. But um, uh, And some festival business and stuff now has broken into that as well in other countries because they need... Uh, plastic or PT plastic uh, quarter bottles are used a lot as they're used in planes now as well. And there was a guy on Dragon's Den in the UK, I don't know if you saw him, where he was doing, it's like a wine, plastic wine glass mm. with the sealed top with the wine in it. I've seen it, the, I didn't see it. No, I've, I've seen them for sale now. The, the, the well, I don't think he got the investment from Dragon's mm. Den in the UK, but it, yeah, that, that was been done probably about seven or eight years ago. There was a product being sold, particularly for festivals, where you know, it had like similar to a yogurt pull-off top on it. Yeah, you know, exactly. Foil yeah. Top, yeah. And you pulled it off and then the wine was in it already. And it meant they could store them in refrigeration and, and be ready to go. And there was no glasses and it was a single serve. Um, they looked absolutely dreadful now. But they, <laughs> and you know, who knows? But listen, it, well, was, it served a purpose. Well, packaging is something that's very important, really. Mm. You know, when they say you eat with your eyes, maybe at a festival, you're not so worried mm. about that. But some of the wines that you've got today, you've one yes. particular wine here and it has a lovely label on it that is textured 
Yes. Well, what I thought was that when, when I picked a few wines for us to look at today, I bought two New Zealand products because just the, the popularity is, is phenomenal on, on New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc in particular. And uh, I brought two Malbecs uh, from Argentina, again for the reason that Ireland has just taken the Malbec um, in a ferocious way in the last uh, two years, year and a half really, I suppose. And people have gone from, we've gone from having maybe two Malbecs on our list and them tipping away very slowly in restaurants to now we have eight Malbecs, um, uh, one Italian, uh, one French and uh, six Argentinian. Actually, I have another Chilean, that's nine, a Chilean one as well, but six Argentinian Malbecs. And is it mainly South America that they would come from? Well, no, the Malbec is, is traditional South of France grape. Um, it works fairly well in Italy as well and was transferred to Italy. Um, but when it went to Argentina, Mendoza and San Juan in Argentina, it just found its natural home, found the weather that really suited it. And even if you take the, the, the South of France product from the Rhone Valley, where it's traditionally been from, and compare that to the Malbec in Argentina, the Malbec in Argentina is a much bigger product, much more powerful. Um, just the finer weather made it more mature, quicker, um, gave it more sugar content, higher alcohol, uh, but a real, real powerful drink. And not to everybody's taste, we always thought, because it was, it was has a little rough element to it that's not as fine or delicate as Merlot is or Cabernet or any of those. Um, but it's Irish people has really taken to it very well. Very food-orientated wine. But as, as we said already, the... For the amount of sales we're seeing, it, it's not all attached to food. People are in bars drinking glasses of it now where they're not eating as well. That's fairly obvious. It must be the case. Because it's the sort of wine that I would opt for if I was having a steak mm, because I've been told it goes very well with steak. It does because look where it comes from. It's coming from Argentina where their you know, meat is, is it. You know, that's the um, vegetarians must have a, just a horrific time uh, because it's so much meat, uh, so much big cuts, um, uh, and fried meat, you know, barbecued, very strong flavoured meat. And this is, uh, Malbec's the perfect version. I bought two Malbecs, one from Mendoza, which is the, um, I suppose, the most well-known area in Argentina, and the other one from San Juan, which is a little bit over towards, more towards Chile, um, and close to the Andes, and a really up-and-coming area in Argentina. And the best thing about that was the Malbecs is they're very good value. Like, both of those are coming in around 12 or 13 euros. So not that expensive. Mm -hmm. But they're at the upper end now. They're at the better end. And it's very interesting that this one, the year I know is on all the bottles of wine, but the year is very prominent on yeah, this one. Yeah, smacked it right out front, yeah, which is... Um, now, they haven't as much, but uh, that this for the Luigi Bosca is the producer of this La Linda Malbec, um, like costing around 12 euros a bottle. I think it's a fantastic product. Big, heavy bottle. Everything about it is good, real quality. And it's a really smashing product in 2015 vintage of that. But a lovely, lovely product. Not in any shops at all. And should it be drunk young? Yes, yeah. It's not, they're not meant like those ones. Now, they make a reserve version of this. It's not called reserve. It's called a select because they can't use the word reserve in Argentina. Um, so it's a selected version of this, which is a, um, a much more A for an aging product. And when they're aged, this is put into the bottle to be ready to drink immediately. As um, soon as it hits the bottle. But then they produce other products which are not quite ready. So there might be 2012 now of that selected that would be perfect. Yet when it was originally released a couple of years ago, it would have been a bit young to drink. It would have been fine, it just wouldn't be as good as what it is. And why can't they use reserve in Argentina? They changed the rules because uh, Chile haven't done this yet. 
Um, reserve means things in various countries. Um, I suppose Spain is the best um, is the best example of it, where it actually means something. Uh, there's a criteria that it needs to fall into, and it's time and oak, time in an oak barrel that gives it that, that allows you to call it. In Spain, allows you to call it a crianza, which is uh, up to six months, uh, reserva, which is nine months plus, and then gran reserva, which is eighteen months plus. In the in the the cask. Now that that's criteria that you have to follow. Uh, whereas in when it was in Argentina, reserva meant you just liked it more than the other one. You know, you felt it was better than the previous one or the other one, and the same in Chile. And that doesn't really mean anything. So it has no... And it's kind of deceptive for the people who are buying it because they assume that this product is better, where oftentimes it's not. So the selected... A lot of the companies use the word selected or they might have selection or they might have different ways of single vineyard where they say it actually comes from somewhere in particular. But the, the the selected version of this one is an actual parcel where they believe the best Malbec is grown and it comes from there. So a lot of them are very proactive. They do it properly. you know. They, and you would know that, but your average diner sitting in the restaurant wouldn't necessarily know that, just that the price would be an indicator. Yeah, the price would be a fairly serious indicator. Like you jump up significantly. So on a restaurant wine list, like that Lelinda would be somewhere around 27 euros, 26, 27 euros. And the selected version will be 35. Okay. The other Malbec then? It's Lunaris. This is from Calia, uh, from San Juan, different region. Uh, if anything, it's a slight bit more easier to drink than the Mendoza ones. It's not as rough around the edges, a bit more refined. Uh, but it's really up and coming. And this is, a, we have this in two labels, as it turns out. Uh, Lunaris and uh, Cali Alta, because we sell quite a lot of it to the same kind of places. So we have two labels in it to kind of diversify but it's the same product. Same product inside. Same product inside. Oh, okay. That happens quite a bit with wine. Whereas, um, you know, it's... So you can't... There's a certain bit of... Um, there needs to be an exclusivity for products. Uh, and really, you just need to be able to, to manage that. And a lot of the time, the winery will say, well, we have two labels um, for the product. If you want, we're happy to put them on it. Yeah. So that works very well. Uh, yeah, and I know, Nick, all of your wines, as you said, you can't get them in shops because I think whenever you do go out to, to eat, if you see something that's mm. on the menu that you can buy in the local supermarket for a fraction oh, yeah. of the price, Absolutely. it doesn't, it's not a good feeling. I, I listen, there's nothing wrong with them, you know, because there's products, huge branded products that are very popular. And there's a reason they're very popular because they're actually very nice. But I think there is an issue, you know, there's a certain amount of... Um, you don't need to be shoved in your face the fact that you can buy something for 10 euros and that it may be 27 or 28 euros in a restaurant. Like, you just don't need to be really told that. that uh, there's a few products that kind of good, that kind of manage to, to, to serve both. Um, there is uh, Wolf Plas is one, uh, for example, and I sell Wolf Plas as well. And uh, restaurants still buy it and will not take it off the list because it's such a huge following for it. It's remarkable. Is that because people are familiar with it? Familiar and really like it. The product's very good. Like there's nothing. Uh, the quality is exceptionally good at the lower levels, particularly you know the like the house wine and the one above it. They're very very good products. Um, but then everybody knows the price of it. You know everybody knows that, that product is, off times eight fifty or nine euros in the supermarket on offer. You know there's, there's a certain amount. Now the chance of the restaurants won't be able to buy it for that at all. They'll probably pay more. Probably better cheaper for them to buy it in the shop actually, if they thought about it. Mad, yeah. It is. And then let's talk about the New Zealand. Yes. They're both Sauvignon Blancs. Both Sauvignon Blancs uh, from two different areas in New Zealand. Marlborough, which is the area, you know, it's the one that gets all the attention. And then Hawke's Bay, which is a 
been around for the same length of time, but doesn't quite produce as much wine, uh, but very produces really unique products. And this is a product called Elephant Hill. It's a winery owned by German people. Um, they set it up um, probably about 15 years ago now. Uh, in our Nash days, we dealt with these as people as well, and we've started dealing with them again now. Um, and the Elephant Hill is, is basically they have an elephant sculpture in the, on the way into the vineyard, a huge one. You visited it? Have no, you I've been never there? been to New okay. Zealand, but I'm going to go sometime. My kids <coughs> get through college, maybe. Um, <laughs> but the uh, owned by a German people, they do everything right. Everything is just remarkably doing well. And they believe they're the closest uh, vineyard to the ocean in the world because the beach literally runs into the vineyard. The sand is, is right there. And they believe they're the closest. They haven't seen anywhere else closer. And how does that impact on the flavour of the grapes and, and the, the ultimate end product? Well, see, the, the air movement is hugely important for, for grape growing. You need hot days and cool nights. And the sea gives you that. You know, mountains give you that as well. Uh, so a lot of the stuff around the Andes in South America grows particularly well for that reason. Um, but it works really well. Now, there's a salt issue, you know, of course, which needs to be handled as well. You can't allow salt to get in there or water to wash in on top of it. That would be a disaster. So when I mean very close, I mean from 25 feet or 30 feet away from where the beach would start. But um, it's a beautiful setting. Uh, a friend of mine was there, actually. He was over at the, um, at the World Cup, the Ruby World Cup, maybe four or five years ago. And we organised a visit from his customer who bought it. And he was just amazed. They have a restaurant. They have a tasty rooms amazing place I love the label we'd mentioned yeah. the label before about the texture yes, label the it's just it's elephant just skin adds something extra to it it's like elephant skin is that's it that's the idea yeah. okay cool yeah but I want to emphasize the fact that it has nothing to do with elephants and there's no elephants <laughs> harmed in this it's just a texture put on the thing and the other one is that it was a really unique product it's called Kono um, which is the first uh, from Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc as well uh, first 100% owned Maori Maori owned vineyard in New Zealand now they have a whole uh, wine is one part of what they do they have a whole food mentality as well where they grow vegetables fruit uh, honey uh, olive oil a whole uh, cooperative idea put together all Maori based and uh, but this, uh, this is not a gimmicky product now. This product is winning uh, awards all around it. It's a smashing product and it's fantastic value. A really, really good value. And how much would those wines retail at? That's about €12 Euros a bottle. Uh, that's about 16 now. It's more okay, expensive. yeah. All um, right. The Elephant Hill. The Elephant Hill. Right. But the Kono is about 12 12 50 a bottle. Okay. Very good value. Well, all great looking wines. Thanks a million for coming in and telling You're us welcome. about them tonight. And of course, forestal.ie is the web address. Yes. If people want to get in touch or place an order, they'll get all your details there. Absolutely. Great Thanks, to talk Sean. to you as always. Cheers. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break our resident wine expert Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants was here in the studio with me to talk about wines from New Zealand and I've no doubt that some of your firm favourites are from that part of the world.
If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And now it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, we'll be finding out about what a three-day foraging retreat on Lambay Island involves, thanks to blogger Rory Carrick. But before that, we're going to do our best to indulge in a spot of healthy eating. Neve Arthurs is a public health and clinical nutritionist, and she joins us via Skype now. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Neve, you're a public health and clinical nutritionist. What exactly does that involve? So an easier question might be sometimes, what doesn't it involve? Um, so Sharon, my role is very, very broad and very varied. After working in the NHS in the UK for a few years, I came back to Ireland and I went into more of a public health role. So I do contract work for Leia Healthcare and for Musgraves. And through this, I do work in schools. I helped to create the school programme Super Troopers, Nutri Safari, Leia Healthcare, and I do a lot of cooking demonstrations at events and festivals around Ireland. I do clinics and a lot of workplace and community sessions such as sports clubs and parent and toddler groups. It has been reported that Ireland is set to be the most obese nation in Europe by 2030. A lot has changed apparently in the past 80 years. So your services must be very much in demand to try and counteract that. Definitely. And I think that's one of the most enjoyable things about my work at the moment. Because I work in public health, I'm generally dealing with people who are generally healthy in the community, living their lives and maybe just need to change a few things about the way that they're living at the moment to to just get the most of their health and and their life really as well. And um, so you mentioned some of the scary statistics and I get this question all the time. Is that is that true? And um, yes, it absolutely is. And it's particularly scary when it comes to children. Children now are predicted to be the first generation ever to not live as long as their parents. At the moment in Ireland, 20% of our 5 to 12-year-olds are overweight or obese. And this is growing all the time. So we really, really need to take measures now to try and stop, to try and halt this trend and trying to start reverse it as well. Well, they are very alarming statistics. There's no doubt about that. What do you attribute these issues to? Where are we going wrong as parents and what do we need to do to correct it? It's. I think we can't just point the fingers on parents. It's society, it's changes in our environment, changes in our lives. And it's just if we do change our environments and our, and our lives to become this quite busy, stressful, um, I know a lot of families... Both parents are working, which may mean that they feel there's less times for less time to cook and less time to prepare fresh at home. Sometimes it's a guilty thing that parents feel they're not spending enough time with their children. So they give in to them more often with the treats or the less healthy kind of takeaway meals or eating fast food and things like that. So it's just about being more mindful about what we're doing and also having the power, parents having power and being firm and consistent and knowing how to say no to a child and knowing that you're actually doing them good. It's okay to have treats. I'm not suggesting that we go and stick candles into into bananas for our birthday cake or anything like that. 
but it is important that we know that if we eat eight, if we well eighty percent of the time, which is the majority of the time, then we can have that twenty percent treats for on a, at the weekend or maybe Christmas or our birthdays or whatever it might be, but not every day. There is a new food pyramid out now. Is that something that can help us in this cause to try and improve our eating habits? Yeah. So the food, the new food pyramid came out really because of the the scary statistics and looking at how the health the health of our nation is going in the future. I mean, I know overweight and obesity is something that's quite obvious to the eye, but something other diseases that are associated with our health and not eating so well is things like diabetes. So even slim people or people who don't look maybe overweight or obese can also have diabetes and diabetes in the past two decades in Ireland has tripled. So this is quite scary as well. And obviously it's impacting on several other things in life, our confidence, our self-esteem and things like that too, our concentration, work and in school. So with the new food pyramid that came out last year, about November 2016, the major change is that the Department of Health is recommending fruit and vegetables make up the majority of the diet. So each at each meal, trying to have some fruit or vegetables, because really we're, we're not eating even near as much. The Healthy Ireland survey showed that 73% of people in Ireland eat less than the recommended five portions of fruit and vegetables from the old food pyramid. So now the new food pyramid is saying seven portions of fruit and vegetables. And for a lot of people, this seems colossal. How am I going to get seven in if I wasn't even getting five in? But I think it's about trying to break it down and trying to be more open-minded and looking at your plate that half of it, if you look at all the food that you eat in a day, half of it should be fruit and vegetables, a quarter of it, about about a quarter of it protein and about a quarter of it are whole grain carbohydrates. And that will make a huge difference because one of our main issues in Ireland that was driving the obesity, the overweight and the diabetes trend was we were eating way too much carbohydrates and our portion sizes as well. So if we can make that small change, just trying to reduce the carbohydrates and by replacing it with more fruit and vegetables and reducing the snacks, because again, six out of 10 of us eat snack foods more than six times per day. I'm a bit confused whenever it comes to the intake of fruit and veg because, well, not so much veg because I feel you can't get enough of the veg, but in terms of fruit because of the natural sugars in it, do you have to be careful about how much fruit you eat? Definitely. You mentioned a really, really good point there, Sharon. It is fruit and vegetables. So we say aim for seven fruit and vegetables. And actually in Australia... They say two fruit and five vegetables to highlight the importance of actually eating vegetables as well. So obviously we know that fruit is sweeter than vegetables. When we taste it, we can taste the sweetness. So you are getting fruit sugars, which is natural sugar. But at the same time, you don't want to have you want to make sure that you're getting that balance with the lovely all the lovely vitamins, and minerals, antioxidants, things that you're getting from your vegetables as well. So when it comes to portion sizes, we're looking at one medium-sized fruit, so one apple, banana, one orange, two of the smaller fruits, such as two kiwis or two satsumas. And then it comes, when it comes to our berries, it comes, it's six, six strawberries, 10 grapes, and 16 raspberries. With our vegetables, a portion size is two handfuls. So a lot of when I get a lot of 
adults and children to do this, to put out their hands at my demonstrations, they think, wow, that's amazing. I'm definitely not eating that much. If you think about two handfuls of vegetables, it's just one portion. And we need up to seven of these a day. I think it's interesting there, would you say, about whenever you are at a demonstration, for example, and you get the adults to put their their hands out because you have a quote on your webpage there by Benjamin Franklin, which is a fantastic quote, I think. Tell me and I will forget. Teach me and I will remember. Involve me and I will learn. And that's something that you're very much about, is involving children and adults in your workshops. Absolutely. I just, I feel... The more you put into something, the more you will get from it. And if you can give people some take home message, whether it's, you know, portion sizes with their hands, whether it's an experiment. I love doing experiments in my demonstrations as well, blowing things up or demonstrating different concepts. Um, You know, whether it's a balloon whizzing around a room to show our sugar levels when we eat too much sugar or whether it's showing how much uh, sugar is in something like Lucozade by making it up in front of them. So that's a good one. That's a very good visual one. All I do is get get a glass of sparkling water. I add 16 teaspoons of sugar to it and some orange food colouring. And then I ask them, would you taste this? And always it's, again, a lovely big um, audience answer of no. But that's what you're drinking, basically, when you're drinking a bottle of Lucozade. I do with other things as well, you know, the Coke and show how much sugar is in different things. Because I think it's lack of awareness and lack of education sometimes as well. People just don't realize they don't mean to eat so much sugar or they don't realize that they're not eating enough fruit and vegetables, but it's just bringing home that point and giving something to remember so that the next time they're out in their shop, they remember that three quarters of their supermarket has foods with added sugars and, you know, they can use their portion sizes with their hands to, to get a better measure on their plates of when the, so that make sure that they're not overeating or not having too big portions. Well, there is no doubt that the Lucozades and the sugary drinks are the devil. They certainly are in, in this house. Where do you sit then whenever it comes to the diet fizzy drinks? Diet fizzy drinks can be a useful swap, um, especially if the fizzy drink's only been consumed as a treat. So only every now and again, maybe for the birthday at the cinema, or maybe if it's they're going to go out for a meal, fast food and it's included as a treat now and then, the diet one I would recommend over the sugar one. An even better one would be maybe, especially at home in the house, definitely no diet drink or definitely no fizzy drinks in the house, but you could make up your own exciting drink and I understand that you know sometimes drinking just plain water can be boring Um, so sometimes it's good to to freshen it up I guess if you put a jug of sparkling water in the fridge and then add fresh fruit to it so maybe you could add orange or um, lemon or lime and mint and even for adults, I always say that if you add lime and mint, it's kind of like a non-alcoholic refreshing mojito <laughs> or maybe something like ginger as well, just to give it that extra bit of flavor. But it's coming from something natural rather than relying on the sugary drinks and which are full of um, artificial flavors, sweeteners, even the, the diet ones. You know, they're, they've got all the different colorings and flavors and things added to them. 
In our house, I have one lady, she's six years of age and she's mad for the fizzy water. She loves the fizzy water. So if we were out, we might put a bit of orange cordial into that and that would be her fizzy orange. Then the five-year-old boy, he, the apple juice, he's absolutely mad for apple juice. Apple juice, I have actually a a really hard-hitting home story about a six-year-old I had who just drank apple juice the whole time the whole time and she had to get 12 teeth pulled out you have to be very very careful when it comes to fruit juices um because they are the, sh- the fruit sugars are broken down as we spoke about earlier fruit obviously does have naturally occurring fruit sugars which is okay when you're eating them because you're getting the fiber when you actually eat fruit but when you break them down you're just drinking those free sugars which are you know going around your teeth and the acid and things like that as well so just be very careful with well is what i would recommend with fruit juices and try to limit them to one a day okay well that's good advice something we'll have to take on board in the noonan household this summer you have been out and about trying to teach the nation how to eat a bit better and especially with children you've been doing some summer camps yeah i was actually doing uh, i'm doing sports nutrition at summer camps and just and again it's it's brilliant to see the interest and how much even young children are engaging more and more with kind of what's going around them, their environment. Um, I suppose they're doing a lot more programs in schools now too. So hopefully they're, they're getting a lot from school as well about things like the food pyramid and our portion sizes. But particularly for the sports nutrition, I'm advising them about how to make sure that we've got enough energy. And it's brilliant to see how positive they are to come on board and they're really, you know, they're really happy to, to try different foods. I make up these energy balls. I make up different sports drinks that they would have instead. And I show the, the difference in costs and things like that, especially for their for their adults and the, their parents. Um, the difference in if they make up things themselves, they're more likely to eat them. They're more likely to be healthier. You can freeze them and have them as you're going along. And you're getting them into these good habits now, especially during the summertime when they've got more time to try things, to make things at home. And that might help them then in their lunch boxes when they go back to school in September. Well, that's um, a good trick now, as you say, whenever they go back to school in September. And we need all the help that we can whenever it comes to making up the lunch boxes. It's been great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for sharing all of those hints and tips. If people want to find out more about your workshops and the work that you do, where's the best place for them to go? And um, so you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, which is just via Bites, via the Irish for Food, B-I-A, and then Bites, B-I-T-E-S. And then my website is beabites.net. Neve Arthur's public health and clinical nutritionist. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks a million, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, we were talking to public health and clinical nutritionist Neve Arthurs about how to improve our eating habits. And at the very start of the show, Ron Forrestal, our resident wine expert from Forrestal Wine Merchants, was here in studio to talk about wines from down under. And that was from New Zealand. 
If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 9am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as on iTunes and the podcast app and on the taste.ie website voted Ireland's Best Online Digital Food and Drink magazine. Now, the last part of the show tonight is with food blogger Rory Carrick. Rory is on the line tonight to tell us about a foraging retreat he recently enjoyed on Lambay Island. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rory, you're very welcome to the show and you did a very interesting foraging course recently. I certainly did, Sharon, and uh, thank you for having me on. I actually took a trip to Lambay Island for three nights recently. Where exactly is Lambay Island? So Lambay is just off the coast of uh, Dublin, so it's on the north side. Um, so I'm actually originally from Rush, and it's just off the coast of Rush, Rush, Skerries, Malahide area. So I would have actually grown up looking at Lambay, uh, but would never have been until quite recently. Uh, is this somewhere where people live, or is it an uninhabited island? Um, so on the island, uh, there are about six people that actually live there full time. So the current owners of the island are the Bering family. So Alex Bering, his wife um, and their two kids actually live on the island full time. And then they also have a housekeeper over there and a groundskeeper. Um, and they also have at different kind of times of the year, they run a program where Erasmus students who are kind of interested in the areas of ecology, for example, can actually go and spend a couple of months um, on the island as well, working, working kind of with their university. I have a feeling I've maybe come across this island on Nationwide or a cookery programme or something like that. It's, it's quite possible. It's, it's one of those places where people tend to know where Lambay is, but there's kind of an air of mystery about it. Um, and not that many people have been on it because you actually have to get permission to go on it as, a, as it is a private island. And is there a rare breed of a particular animal there? There's, there certainly is. And again, people kind of think uh, you're, you're telling lies when you say it, but they actually have quite a large colony of wallabies on That's the island. It. So I believe there's about 300 at the moment. That's it. I've come across that now, I'd say, on Nationwide or some programme that they were talking about. That all rings a bell. Now, did you come across any of those when you were there? Uh, Well, would would you believe, even though there are about 300 on the island, they are notoriously difficult to actually spot. Uh, But we did go out uh, particularly to look for some wallabies. And after about two hours of of searching, um, I did get some quite quite a few uh, photos of them. So they're they're inquisitive and then they kind of tend to disappear into the brush. And what's the story about how they ended up there on the island? Um, So I believe the story was that back in the 80s, the uh, Dublin Zoo had, I suppose, more than they could actually handle. And the Bering family that were on at the time offered to take some of the the wallabies onto the island. Um, And so they did. And naturally, the uh, the colony has grown larger as time has gone on. So they do actually cull them every so often as well. So it sounds like the Bering family have owned this island for a long time and now they're, they're branching out to enable visitors to come and spend time on it. That's, that's exactly it. I mean, the, the island has been in the family, uh, I believe, for, for you know, quite a long, long time. Um, and I suppose the current um, generation of the family are making it that little bit more accessible to people. So they've quite a lot of 
innovative ideas of how to kind of um, I suppose promote it but promote it in a in a very responsible way to you know they don't want the, the island obviously overrun with loads of tourists they want to kind of um, look after the ecology of it they want to retain a certain air of mystery and of course it is their home as well so obviously they they uh, they do need to be kind of cautious about who they invite onto the island. Well, tell us then about this three-day foraging retreat. So you, you, you actually stayed on the island for the three days. I did. So I went on, um, I actually happened to be reading one of our, our local um, kind of magazines, Scary's News, and they had an article about a forager called Monica Wild. So Monica is very much... Um, you know, interested in, in obviously all things nature, in um, rewilding, which is going back to nature, foraging for food. Um, she's actually based in Scotland, but she runs a number of different retreats um, throughout the year. And Lambay Island, uh, she happens to be running four different retreats this year. So she's kind of coinciding them uh, with the seasons. So there's a spring, summer, autumn and winter one. So lucky for me, I was just in time for the, uh, the summer one. So I got in touch and obviously said I wanted to go along. Um, and it's quite a quite an interesting weekend. It's uh, You go on the Friday and you get the boat from Malahide. So you go over Friday afternoon, arrive in the island. Um, it's only about 20 minutes by boat. Um, check into your accommodations then as well. And I just have to say the accommodation on the island is stunning. It is absolutely stunning. So when, you, when you're looking at the island from the coastline, you can actually see these white buildings and they're of Luthien's style. And I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they are a beautiful um, white cottages and a large white house. And they've all been renovated. So they obviously have all of the modern fixtures in terms of bathrooms and bedrooms and all of that as well on it. Um, so the accommodation is stunning. You're, you're, you're talking kind of four-star boutique hotel level of, of accommodation. So you stay on the Friday night. Um, usually kind of on arrival, you'll do a short kind of tour of the area, kind of get your bearings of, of where different parts of it are, the harbour, um, where the castle is, where the houses are. Um, then there's, you know, we had drinks by the fire, for example, that Friday evening. We had a communal dinner with the group that was with us as well. So everybody gets to know each other as well kind of strong focus on kind of getting to know each other and chatting and, you know, telling each other's stories and uh, discovering what each person wants to get from the weekend as well. So it's very much a switch off as well. Can I ask you how uh, many people are in the group? So usually they, they try to keep it to about 12 people in the group. Now, on our particular group, um, they were doing a smaller one. So there was about eight of us. But on the same boat that we were going over with, there was a group of ladies. There was six ladies who were also going to spend a week over there to do Tai Chi. And they had actually rented out one of the cottages um, for an entire week. And they were doing self-catering and they brought over all of their own food and drinks and um, everything they needed for the week. So it's quite interesting that they do these different strands of um, activities like the Tai Chi, like the foraging um, on the island as well. So that was the first night, that was the Friday night, and it sounds like you probably got a very good night's sleep in a very comfortable bed. We certainly did. I mean, it was, it's, uh, I have to say, it's, it's like stepping into a different world. It was so quiet. Uh, I mean, there's nothing around you, obviously, because you, you are on a, on, a, on a relatively small island in the middle of the sea. Um, while there was a television, for example, we didn't turn it on for the entire weekend. It was very much a case of just kind of, you know, having our chats, getting to know each other. We all got up early then the next morning, kind of at eight o'clock on the Saturday morning, had a communal breakfast. Um, and then we, we went out essentially with Monica, who was our guide for the weekend, and she took us foraging. So essentially, 
the foraging is, you know, looking at the shoreline, um, looking at kind of what's in the hills, looking at what's in the hedgerows and how we kind of incorporate whatever we find into our dinners, into our lunches, um, even into our drinks, for example. So it just happened to have the, the garden outside the the door had borage leaves and I'd never heard of borage leaves before but they actually taste quite like taste and smell like cucumber and funnily enough they go perfectly with gin so we we foraged quite a lot of those and I brought a bottle of gin with me um, so there was gins by the fire that evening again that was good planning bringing the gin with you yeah absolutely yeah so it was it was it was quite interesting i mean there's there's nothing monica doesn't know about whether it be a plant whether it be a weed whether it be a piece of seaweed uh, whether it be a tree whether it be a type of moss and so she she also works as um, kind of like a herbalist as well so the the level of knowledge is just incredible i've never seen anything like it and you, you learn all of these little snippets of information about plants that you might see in your garden all the time but not necessarily know how to use them or what they could be used for and do you feel confident enough now to go out into a forest into a green area that you've maybe never visited before and to forage in it uh, what I would say is I would certainly be able to identify some of the plants now um, I still would be you know quite cautious and I would kind of say to anyone who is going out to forage maybe get a book on foraging maybe just you know particularly around, say, mushrooms, for example, which, you know, there can be a danger with them. Um, so do it responsibly. And if you're not sure about something, certainly look it up. There's a lot of resources um, to kind of help you, you know, with find kind of the, the right things for you. But certainly things that you might see, like berries, for example. Um, also, we found kind of just in the hedgerow beside us um, a weed called pineapple weed. And it, it essentially the top of it looks like a little pineapple. I've seen it in my garden and I've literally pulled it out and shown it in the bin. It actually smells like pineapple and funnily enough, it also goes great in gin. So <laughs> there was a lot of gin foraging um, <laughs> going on on the island as well. Well, sure, that's great because you can always put that to good use. Yes, absolutely. We also went and took a tour of the castle as well while we were there. So uh, the Lambay Castle itself, again, it's in this this kind of architectural style called Lutyens. And you can't actually see it from anywhere on the island. So it's it's very well kind of camouflaged. It's got a large wall around it and then it's got a hedgerow on top of that. So you could literally walk by it and not know it's there. You can't really see it that much either from, from the air. So that's where the Bering family are actually living. And Alex was very kind and he let Monica take us in on a, a tour of some parts of the, the castle. And again, as I said, it, it is their home and it was very gracious of them to allow to allow us to go in. But it is stunning. It's all been restored. Um, I mean, the architecture, the furniture is everything from, from the period. And it is absolutely stunning. And it's always great to see around other people's houses, I think. Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't love a little nose around, you know, <laughs> get some ideas for ourselves. Not that I have a castle at home or anything. <laughs> now, tell me, how much would an experience like this cost? So for this particular weekend, which uh, runs on the... So you're there Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. It includes your boat trip over and back um, from Malahide Marina. And it also includes your breakfast, your lunch and your dinners. So it's 900 euro in total. 
um, and as part of that what you all obviously you're learning new skills uh, like for example there was bread making one of the evenings um, obviously I said you know there's there's drinks by the fire you're allowed to actually bring with you kind of anything you want as well so for example I had brought gin other people had brought you know different types of cheese and there's a lot of kind of communal sharing and people kind of get really hands-on and help make dinner learn new skills like we had wallaby stew for example one of the evenings which, uh, was, which is quite an experience. Um, having seen the wallabies obviously hopping around the island, we, we know exactly where it came from. Uh, but some of the group were, were actually sitting at the kitchen table and they were obviously cutting up the, the meat to prepare it for the stew as well. So it was, it, was, it was a really immersive type of trip. It's not cheap, I have to say that. No, it's not cheap, but it is quite a lot of money. It absolutely is. I mean, certainly it's not, not everyone is going to have 900 euro to take off for three nights. Um, I suppose if it's an area that you're interested in, it's an island, as I said, that not everybody actually gets a chance to go to. It's quite immersive. It is, is that it is three nights. And the accommodation is superb, I have to say. I definitely, I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, but certainly, it is an expensive, uh, expensive treat for yourself. It's absolutely an experience, I have to say. And I would recommend it. This isn't the first foraging course you've done, is it? No, it's, it's not, actually. I, uh, so I went last year to Brook Lodge in McCredden Village, who also run um, a foraging course as well. So they actually have another one, couple of them coming up this year as well um, so it was a nice introduction I'd gone and I'd spent a day um, down with the guys at Brook Lodge who I mean they're also superb they have they have a, a forager on site all the time Claude Hild is her name um, and again the level of knowledge is, is is superb so if you were looking for even for a taster trip as well you can go down there and you can spend a day and they'll do take you out for foraging they'll take you around the pantries um, and they'll do lunch um, and it's I think it's about 150 euro or something like that not 100% of the cost but it'll be on their website but they're also doing an overnight package as well so if you decide you want to stay and make use of the spa you can cook the two together and kind of make a little night of it. If listeners would like to read a bit more about these experiences, do you have the details on your website? Yes, so I'm going to have all of the details of these experiences on my website, www.eatdrinkrunfun.com and certainly I'll have all the details of the various trips and the costings and when the next dates are. Fantastic. Rory, thanks so much for telling us about it today and keep us posted the next time you go on one of these trips. They're very interesting. I like hearing about them. I certainly will. Thanks for having me on, Sharon. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Lovely to talk to Rory and thanks so much to him for getting in touch to tell us about the retreat. And if you have been on a food or drink adventure recently and feel that the best possible taste listeners would be interested in hearing about it, please do send me the details to s.noonan at live.ie. And thanks to Mary McGettigan, Fulci Ireland food champion and one of the organisers of A Taste of Donegal for dropping me a line. You might recall that we were talking to Chris Malloy a few weeks ago in Donegal about the food festival that was on in Letterkenny last month. And Chris mentioned the upcoming Taste of Donegal and Mary dropped me a line to say that it's on at the end of this month from Friday the 25th of August until Sunday the 27th of August. If you visit ataste.donegal.com, all the details are there. And the lineup for the weekend includes celebrity chefs Nevin Maguire, Kevin Dundon, 
Gary O'Hanlon, Joe Shannon, Brian McDermott, Catherine Fulvio and Edward Hayton, 130 plus exhibitors with tastings, entertainment and much more. And we must wish Chef Gary O'Hanlon, who is from Donegal originally but head chef in Viewmont House in Longford and known for his role in RTE's The Restaurant, the very best of luck in the celebrity operation transformation. And that brings us to the end of tonight's Best Possible Taste. Thanks so much for listening and to all of my guests for talking to me, Ron Forrestal, Neve Arthurs and Rory Carrick. If you've missed any of tonight's show or you want to listen to previous shows of the Best Possible Taste, be sure to check them out on SharonNoonan.com. I'll be back at the same time next week, all being well. So until then, fingers crossed for some much-wanted August sunshine. Take care. Bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>